Today's episode was underwritten by the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative. EastEd is a nonprofit group dedicated to increasing equity in schools, communities, and higher ed. For more information, go to www.easted.org. You are listening to Teaching While White, where whiteness intersects with anti-racist teaching and learning. I am Elizabeth Denevi. And I am Jenna Chandler-Ward. More than 80% of teachers in the U.S. are white, but most don't know that their whiteness matters. We want to shine a light on how whiteness impacts education. To illuminate the assumptions that are used as a baseline from which everything is judged, because whiteness is what passes for normal. We want to confront those assumptions so that we can become consciously and intentionally anti-racists for all of our students. You are listening to Teaching While White. Today we are talking about something we are hearing more and more about, white fragility. The term was coined by Robin D'Angelo, our guest on today's show. D'Angelo is an author and national consultant on issues of race. Her latest book is White Fragility, Why Is It So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism? It's already a New York Times bestseller. D'Angelo chronicles the ways white people avoid racial discomfort and stymie productive conversations about racism in the process. She also explores ways to move beyond this defensiveness. Michael Eric Dyson wrote the foreword, and he calls the book vital, necessary, and beautiful. I sat down with D'Angelo, and I started by asking her to define white fragility. It refers to how um, unable most white people are to endure racial stress. That uh, we live in a society in which we are racially insulated and protected uh, and comfortable most of the time. It's very, very rare for us to be outside of our racial comfort zones. And we can generally choose that. Uh, and we've most of our lives been warned not to you know, be outside of our racial comfort zones. So I, I, I move through a world that relentlessly reflects me in which my individuality is emphasized, right? The most important thing about me is how unique and special I am. Uh, there are many taboos around talking about race. I think there's guilt around what we know to be true. We're also taught to be somewhat oblivious most of us don't have relationships across race, and if we do, we don't necessarily have difficult conversations. So all of this sets us up to not be able to endure much challenge. So for the average white person, or for many white people, the mere suggestion that being white has meaning will throw us off our racial comfort zones. And white people will take great umbrage at that suggestion. Wow. How can you know anything about me just because I'm white, right? So we push back against that challenge in a range of ways, right? I need you to stop challenging me. It's too uncomfortable for me. A um, little bit of entitlement in there too, right? I'm entitled to be comfortable, so you've done something wrong. Um, and I will push back against the challenge in any way I can to stop it. If I need to cry, I'll cry. And then everyone will come around and comfort me. Mm. Uh, if I need to take umbrage, I'll take umbrage. If I need to withdraw 
and start to avoid you. Whatever it is to kind of press back so that it's that it stops. So it we're fragile in our sensibilities, right? We're fragile in the sense that we can barely challenge the most minimal, you know, suggestion uh, of of whiteness having meaning, much less being directly confronted with an unaware assumption or pattern we've had that's racially problematic. But it's not fragile at all in its impact. It's incredibly effective. I actually think white fragility functions as a kind of white racial bullying. We make it so miserable for people of color to talk to us about our unaware and, you know, uh, inevitable but often unaware racist patterns that we develop as a result of being born and raised in a culture in which racism is the bedrock and the foundation. We are literally swimming in a racist culture every day and we developed, we develop unaware assumptions and patterns, but we make it so difficult for people to point those out that they just don't do it. And in that, it's very powerful. I see white fragility as a form of everyday white racial control. I'm not the 1%, right? I've never even been a manager, but I can control the people of color in my orbit by keeping them in their place and not letting them challenge me without great penalty. And so I I can tell you based on years of doing this work and being in conversation with people of color that they take home way more of our slights and insults and what's termed microaggressions, the little daily cuts. They take home way more of that than they bother talking to us about. And why don't they bother talking to us about it? Because it's too hard. It's not worth it. It's probably going to get worse for them. It is rare for a white person to receive that feedback with grace and humility. And in that, it functions to protect our positions, protect our worldview, protect our blind spots, and protect racial inequality. So do you think it's conscious when people do that? No, I don't think it's conscious. But there's a question that's never failed me uh, in trying to unpack how all this works. Because look, the average white person, even the average white person listening to this program probably doesn't think it's them, right? And yet, by every measure, we have racial inequality in this country that's getting worse, not better. Our outcomes are not approving. And yet, individually, most white people think they are not part of the problem, right? So the question for me in trying to figure out how how does that be? How can that be? I am a good, open person who would never intend to do harm across race. And yet, by every measure, we keep having racial inequality at the tables that I sit at, right? Um, so the question I ask is not true, false, right, wrong, but how does it function? How does white fragility function? Well, it functions to keep people from challenging us, regardless of its conscious motivations. And in that, it, it functions to protect the racial hierarchy. So you talk about it also as being a form of aggression. Um, Aggression, does that imply that it is conscious or on some level are we as white folks using our tears and our upset and our you don't you didn't understand what I meant or you didn't understand my intention? 
we recenter ourselves so that the most important thing becomes us, not the original slight that somebody experienced from us, but you know, I didn't mean it and you need to look at my uh, intentions, not my impact, or you've hurt my feelings now. And so what happens if you hurt my feelings? Well, you, you better comfort me or you're a bad person. And now the original feedback is lost. Uh, uh, people of color are abandoned and yet more resources go back to white people and to center our needs, our concerns, our worldviews, our sensibilities. So again, conscious or not, uh, it functions problematically. And that, that's one of the things that also guides me. So here's an, another example. There are times when I'm sitting in a room or at a table and a discussion's happening that I, I am pretty clear is racially problematic. Maybe uh, we're, I'm on a hiring committee and we're discussing this candidate. There's, we're down to the last two candidates and then we slip over into who'd be the best fit. And right now, you know that one of those candidates is white and one is a person of color. And the best fit is going to go to the white person. And I'm noticing this. And I want to draw our attention to it. I want to even say, well, what does fit even mean, right, from whose perspective? But I actually feel intimidated in that meeting, let's say. Let's say I feel intimidated because I grew up in poor and I don't feel very smart. Or I'm the only woman in the room. And I don't want to challenge the men, right? It may truly be a feeling of inferiority that's keeping me silent in that meeting. But I've had to ask myself, well, how's your silence functioning? Oh, it's colluding with racism. You're going to be seen as a team player. You will actually get ahead by staying silent about racism. And so that's not acceptable for me. And um, in fact, it's a lie that I'm stupid because I was grew up poor. So that has been a really powerful way actually to both heal my own, you know, hurts from mm. inequality while using my racially privileged position to break uh, with a form of, of oppression that I collude with. Do you know like how or why you came up with the term white fragility? It was a kind of like throwing the hands up in the air. Oh, here we go again. You know, just... Um, the incredible um, lack of stamina, the kind of, I, I probably pushed somebody on race and, um, for example, gave some feedback to somebody. You know, I, I'm a consultant. I'm asked to come in and help organizations and help people see their racism. But by God, I better not help anybody see their racism, right? right. Like it's fine on the abstract level. Right. But me, look at, look at myself and... Tell me if you don't recognize this. So I say something racially problematic. You point it out. And then I say, forget it. I'm, I can't say anything right. So I'm not saying anything. Yeah. <laughs> so even that kind of like, I can't say it right. You know, it's, it's racially problematic. You don't understand how. The nature of an assumption is you don't know you're making it. So I'm going to help you see an assumption you're making you weren't aware you were making. Um... And yet you just throw up your hands and, and disengage from the whole discussion. And I probably threw up my hands, you know, behind the scenes and went, ah, oh, this white fragility, right? Mm. And it just resonates. And yeah. it, it, it's grabbed people. You know, racism is an incredibly adaptive system. 
And I can tell you literally where I was sitting when I read Peggy McIntosh's mm. white privilege article because it, it changed my life. I was like a fish being taken out of water and I saw something I had never seen before. But now, you know, everybody says white privilege and then, you know, nothing changes. Right. Uh, and white fragility is maybe the new term that's grabbing people and causing them to do what we so rarely do as white people when the topic is racism. Listen <laughs> and reflect. Uh, it'll come a time when it doesn't doesn't have that effect anymore. But right now, it seems to speak to people. It's recognizable, but maybe just mysterious enough to make you want to know what it is. But I sure don't want to have it, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I should knock off the nonsense. That um, example you gave when you talk about people saying, well, I don't know what the right terms are, so I probably should just say nothing at all. That's like, I feel like that's on the rise more and more. Like, I don't know what the PC term is. What, what word are we using these days? That kind of language. Are you seeing that a lot? Is that, is it just me or is well, it? Well, I don't feel like I see it more, but again, you just like, so how does it function? Right? It just brings the conversation to a screeching halt. Look, I think the average progressive white person's worst fears we would accidentally say or do something racist. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, sincerely, like, oh my God, I would never want to say or do something racist. Right. But dear God, don't you tell me I've just said or done something racist that I didn't know I was racist. Right. Uh, and so what a catch-22, right? Um, you know, we cannot get where we need to go from the current paradigm that says... Racists are individuals who are mean and consciously dislike people across race and intend to hurt them. Basically, no one will identify with that. And as long as that is our definition, then any feedback you give me that connects me to that, I am going to categorically refuse. As a result of being born and raised in this society as a white person, I have a racist worldview. I have deep racist biases. I have developed racist patterns. And I'm invested in the system of racism because it has served me. And I'm also invested in not seeing any of that. Right? right? I didn't choose that. I didn't want that. I got it. Starting from that premise is so liberating and so transformative because I can stop defending, deflecting, denying, hoping you won't notice. And I can start eagerly and enthusiastically seeking to figure out, well, how's it coming out in my life? Right? It may be different in my life than it is in your life, but it's in my life. Mm -hmm. It's coming out. It comes out of our pores. Um, and, and so it's actually exciting. Let's say you were coming out of the bathroom and your skirt was tucked up into your pantyhose and your ass was showing. <laughs> and I rushed up to you and said, oh, my God, your ass is showing. Would you be like, how dare you? No, it is not. And everybody better proceed as if it's not. You'd be like, oh, thank you. And you'd pull your dress down. Right. <laughs> That's a great analogy. <laughs> the two main ways it plays out is either white people listening to me and thinking it's not me. Thinking of, boy, I sure wish so-and-so was here. <laughs> they really need this. <laughs> right? Every moment we do that, that's, that's us saying it's not me. It's you. All right, listener. If you're white, it's you. <laughs> you are not the choir. There is no choir. It's me. I'm not the choir. Mm. The choir assumes 
presumes that we already get it and now we just have to tell other people get it that's the number one barrier to white progressives all right white progressives you are my specialty i love a white progressive (laughs) why because i am a huge white progressive Mm -hmm. and when i started this work I actually thought, well, of course I'm qualified to lead people in discussions of racism. I'm, I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> How could I be racist? I'm a vegetarian. And I need to be a vegan today. But at that time, I, I, you know, those were my... I'm being facetious. But it, it's this idea that it's all about being open-minded. I think white progressives are the most difficult. Yeah. I think we, we hurt people of color the most deeply. And that is because a degree to which we think we're good to go for all the evidence. And we spend a lot of time giving our evidence and our credentials. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where we put our energy. And we don't put our energy where it needs to go for the rest of our lives, which is ongoing, continuous, critical self-knowledge, continuing education, relationship building, mistake making, strategic, intentional, actual action. Sometimes people will say, well, yeah, you know, you're speaking to the choir. I've read your book. <laughs> I'm on the equity committee. And I've learned to answer that with, well, how would people of color know you've read my book? It's a great question. How would people of color know you've, you're you on the equity committee? Show, don't tell. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really going to take this home and think about this. And how will we know that you've thought about this? What is this going to look like? And And I need to say something. Niceness. It doesn't look like niceness. Can you the, say more about that? The default of this society is the reproduction of racial inequality. It does it beautifully, effectively, efficiently. It's always done it. Our schools are particularly effective mechanisms for the reproduction of racial inequality, and we all know it. Or we would not care what school our children went to. And boy, do we care what school our children go to. Oh, yes, we do, because they are not equal. And all this society needs to keep on keeping on reproducing automatically, regardless of your self-image intentions, travels to Costa Rica, our best friend. Let me add multiracial grandchildren in there. None of those things uh, qualify you or, or, or exempt you from this. And all it needs is white people being really nice. Hmm. Just be really nice. Carry on. Say hi to your coworkers of color. Go to lunch on occasion. Now, I'm not saying don't be nice, but niceness is not courageous. It's, it, it's functionally meaningless. Niceness will not get racism on the table and keep it on the table when everybody wants it off the table. Oh, they want it off the table. And you won't be seen as particularly nice. It takes strategic, intentional interruption and action. Niceness is not courageous. It's not strategic action. So that's one way that pushback plays out is all the ways that, that, that white people listen and think it's not me. The other way is it's fine until you call someone directly in. So I was recently at a, uh, was asked to come to a school district's um, Saturday equity team meetings. So these, this school district, their equity teams that represented all the different schools met every, you know, every Saturday for six months or something. So these are all people on the equity teams who signed up to be in this class on this work and and they'd been meeting for months so i came in and gave an hour talk on whiteness everything's going good everybody's nodding and then this white woman raises her hand and she tells a story 
about how she had uh, driven by the school and there was protests going on. And this one mother just yelled at her and then she launched into an imitation of an angry black woman hmm. uh, about how you don't know our children. And of course, everyone just like uh, held their breath because she didn't have to say it was a black woman. From her imitation of the mother, we all knew it was a black woman. And while her point was, and then I went home and realized she was right, I didn't, the emotional thrust of that story was on her umbrage that this mother had accused her of not understanding her children. And it was clear that she hadn't moved past that, right? And so there I was in this moment, what am I going to do, right? There, there's some black teachers in this room, and man, I, I could see that the whole room noticed it, right? So I have a decision to make. Do I name this? I mean, that's what I'm here for. If I don't name this, I'm out of my integrity. But if I name this, odds are very high this room is going to break down into two sides. Who thinks I mistreated the teacher and who doesn't? Mm -hmm. And uh, all hell's going to break loose, right? Well, of course, I had to err on the side of, in my integrity, uh, I need to do this. I was paid. I'm paid. I'm being paid to do it. <laughs> and why? What would I be modeling if I didn't? So I said, "All right, can I offer you a teachable moment?" Mm. Okay, I'm going to ask you to consider not telling that story again. And you know, she began to, and I went, "No, no, no. Just, just listen. Teachable moment." Here's what was problematic about that story. And here's how you could tell the same story without reinforcing that problematic part. I actually, I actually showed her. Here's how you could tell that same story. You know, she interrupted me a few times and eventually she was quiet. And I finished. And we moved on. Well, then we had a break. Hmm. And you know what happened at break. All these people came up to me. Certainly the black teachers came up to me and said, thank you. One white teacher came up to me and said, wow, that was so refreshing. I've never seen it modeled before how to do that. And then a bunch of white people came up and, and let me know that this woman was so upset she was quitting the group and not coming back. Right. That's perfect, right? It's like, again several weeks into a course on how our racism it, it's that fundamental but it's not me uh, I would call that a classic example of white fragility forget it I'm going home I'm not doing this anymore yeah since we are both white women and teachers tend to be white women and our audience is a lot of teachers and white women. And this is not a, a form of self-hatred, but I think we need to talk about white women and white tears um, and white fragility and how that plays out in schools. Yeah, I, I think actually, aside from white progressives, um, white women, when we don't back women of color, uh, I think that betrayal is particularly deep because we have a potential way in through patriarchy and sexism. But very sadly, many white people use 
white women use sexism and patriarchy as a way out. You know, in a way, look, I'm an angry feminist and proud, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we haven't gotten our dues as white women, right? Patriarchy is intense. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but sadly, that resentment about what we didn't get can cause us not to want to look at where we collude with someone else's oppression. I can walk into a room filled with men, and sexism is so salient for me, but I can walk into a room of women and uh, that are white, and and race will be very salient in that room, and any person of color in that room is going to find race really salient. And in that room, I could be running the same patterns that I'm noticing the men running in in the other room. Mm -hmm. So Audre Lorde has a beautiful quote. I'll paraphrase it. The true locus of revolutionary change is never the oppressive situations we seek to avoid, but that piece of the oppressor planted deep within us who knows his ways and his tactics, right? That Mm -hmm. we occupy multiple intersecting identities they're complex but again the question for me is how am I colluding based on my specific situation not how does my specific situation exempt me from colluding Um, and white women uh, one of our tools of white fragility are our tears and this this one can be confusing because I actually think our hearts do need to break and, and I, I think we need to ask ourselves, why aren't our hearts breaking? Where is our grief? Where is our uh, bearing witness to the pain of racism and, and, and the killing that racism does? People die, are dying, right? But our emotions are political. So when I say that, I know a lot of us think emotions are just some natural thing that come up. No, they're political in that, one, they're driven by a framework. I have an emotional reaction based on the framework I'm perceiving through. But also they affect other people. Emotions drive behaviors. And those behaviors affect other people. So when white women cry, a very deep history of terror is invoked doesn't mean that's conscious, but uh, I just need to say Emmett Till. And African Americans in particular know that history in a way that we don't tend to know. When a white woman claims racial distress, people have been killed, right? And part of being white is we don't have to know that. We don't have to attend to that. We bring our histories with us, and it's a history of harm. And part of being a more conscious white person is is to recognize that I may be Robin, you know, with my own uniqueness, I'm also white. So when I cry, that it's going to impact people. And there's going to be a pull for people to comfort me and to draw resources back, right? But we have to use it as a way in, not as a way out. So here would be an example. One, it's just unbearable to me to think that I'm participating in someone else's oppression. That's unbearable. Because I know what it feels like, right? From, from my particular, not, not what racism feels like, but certainly other forms. Um, when I can't figure out a piece of racism, when I'm feeling white fragility, when somebody gives me feedback and I'm feeling defensive, I just imagine myself saying what I'm thinking, that, that a man is saying to me right now what I'm thinking of saying to this person of color. And then I'm like, oh, got it. Right? 
So I want you to imagine, all the white women in here, I want you to imagine that you're in a, a school um, and you're in the administration team, so the superintendent, the principal, so you know right now that even if the schools are elementary, you're going to be in a male environment. Because even in a female-dominated field, men will rise to the top and take leadership over women, and women, of course, will are socialized to turn to them to do that, right? Mm -hmm. So you're in this heavily male room, and the topic is is uh, sexism and sexual harassment and rape culture. Okay. Yeah, man, you might be feeling a little bit vulnerable in that room, right? I mean, that's lots going on. And now imagine um, that you share, you speak up and you share experience you've had uh, in a very vulnerable experience you've had as a woman in that context. And you're met with silence okay. from this room filled with men. Would that silence feel hostile to you? <laughs> it would feel really hostile to me. Yep. There's no way I'm sitting there thinking they're totally with me, right? Because right. there's a deep history of harm. And then one of these guys finally speaks up and says, this is so hard for me to acknowledge, but your story that you just shared has helped me see that I have indeed participated and benefited from all kinds of things that have been exclusive and, right? Would you be thinking, well, there's the jerk? No. Right. You'd be like, I love him. Yes, right. <laughs> oh, thank you. Right. Thank you. That's the guy I trust now. I already know they're all sexist. They, we live in patriarchy just like white supremacy. So if I haven't made this point, heads up, white folks, we all have racism. So you're not fooling anybody, right, by your silence or your carefulness or your credentials. And no, no man in that room would fool me either. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be drawn to the one who is willing to be vulnerable and meet me halfway. Okay. Now imagine the meeting's over and I'm out in the hall and one of these guys I thought was my friend but didn't say anything in that room, comes up to me and says, I just want you to know that I agreed with what you said. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go. Uh, I'd be, you know, that's, that's good to know. But where were you in there? I needed you in there. What a difference it would have made if you backed me up in there. And now all the women who are listening, picture that room filled with white guys in suits. And I ask him, where were you in there? Why didn't you speak up? And he says to me, I didn't feel safe. You didn't feel safe in that room talking about sexism, sexual assault, and rape culture? Oh, you were safe in that. Let's talk about safety. Right. You were safe in that room. You didn't want to break with male solidarity. You didn't want to give up any of your privilege. I would ask him, what does it mean to feel safe or need to feel safe from a position of social, historical, cultural, institutional power and privilege? What's that mean? Right. Okay. So how many white people have you said, we need to build safety before we can talk about racism? <laughs> we need to build trust before we can talk about racism. That has, that's been problematic, but I had trouble putting my finger on it until I imagined a man saying it to me in the context of sex, and then I get it. That's how we can use our positions, our unique positions as white women 
to try to tease out how we are colluding with racism? I mean, I'm trying to think um, specifically about teaching and teachers and schools. And, and you have you've been actually a big part of our following is college professors and administrators and universities and um, community colleges. And I think there's a sort of sense there as well that oh, we're academia, we understand racism, therefore that doesn't play out here. So could you talk to that a little bit? Oh, thank you so much. Oh, man, is academia a hotbed of racism? Yeah. And you will get ahead in academia for not challenging racism, right? Yeah. So no, we're not exempt. And, and right there, oh, we're academics, we understand racism. In that moment, you are complacent and you have certitude and you can never have certitude or complacency as a white person around this topic. That's not humility. And, and it, requ I mean, it, it requires courage and confidence, right? Because it's hard to challenge, but also humility and compassion and a lack of certitude. Darlene Flynn is a African-American woman who uh, was a very powerful mentor to me. My, my book is dedicated to her and another woman, Deborah Terry Hayes. And she, she uses the analogy of being on the airplane and having them say, put your oxygen mask on first and then turn and put the mask on the people that are vulnerable children, right? And so as teachers, what shape are we in? We always kind of want to ask, how do I teach someone right. else? What what shape are you in, right? What what ongoing learning are you engaging in? I truly believe that the more complexity we can see, the more complex will be our responses. And if it's really integrated, it'll come out in everything we do. If you hang out with me, we're going to be talking about racism. Right. Uh, because this is what I care about. It's what I'm passionate about. It, it, it's just a part of how I see the world. And we have to integrate it so that it's a part of how we see the world. And then it comes out uh, in that classroom that we wouldn't be able to talk about any issue without also talking about how race shapes it. Um, that we could never teach history and separate out <laughs> civil war and civil rights as if it occurred in a vacuum, right? Um, that we would always be teaching children to ask Whose perspective is this from? Whose perspectives are missing? Mm -hmm. What is the impact of that? You know, in the real, real specifics, there's just so much good information out there. And I think part of breaking with the apathy and passivity of whiteness is take the initiative and go look it up. Right. right? There's a, there's, where's this 2018? There are so many good lists and rules and rethinking schools and, you know, all of, they're, they're out there. Um, start start a diversity committee and uh, you want to learn everything you need to know about white fragility, just start challenging your school. Hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Uh, try to get racism on the table in every conversation at your school and uh, you'll get to Let's see how quickly it build surfaces. your skills. Mm. Yeah, I think um, I think it's so true, though, that teachers are like, OK, how do I bring this to my curriculum without ever looking at how? And I, again, I include myself in this as a teacher. I did this for years. 
I feel like my biggest tool in the classroom is my own self-awareness. Yeah. And there's always this sort of inclination of white people to make it an academic exercise about how to help other people instead of looking inward. Yes. Well, you know, the number one question I get is, no, there's two. The, the number one is, what do I do? And the other one is, how do I tell so-and-so about their racism? Right. And my response to that question is, well, how would I tell you about yours? <laughs> How Seriously. does that go over? Well, I mean, I hope I hope it makes the point because the question presumes it's not going to be me. I have to go tell somebody else, right? And if you really think it isn't you, I got to ask, how do you know? Yeah. Who are, where's your accountability, right? Who are you in conversation with? Where are you getting uh, challenged? Um, the The real number one question is, what do I do? And this question has bothered me for a really long time. And yeah. I've had trouble getting my hands on it. And I think I figured it out. And I think the way I figured it out will be clear by this. Re this is my new reply. Okay, I'm ready. What about your life has allowed you to be a full functioning, professional, educated adult and not know what to do about racism? How have you managed that? Right. Right. Um, why in 2018 is that your question? <laughs> <laughs> and that, and so it's meant to make a point. It's also a sincere question. Sit down and take, take out a piece of paper and start mapping it out. Probably the very first thing on there is that I was not educated. Mm -hmm. Well, educate yourself and turn forward and educate others. Two, I don't really know anybody. I don't have relationships with people of color. Well, we're going to figure that out. Mm -hmm. Three, Let's be honest, I don't care enough. Look at yourself in the mirror, in your eyes, and say, I don't care enough. And if you can if you can do that and walk away, well, at least do it with honesty. But if you can't, and I can't, then you're going to have to do the hard work to address the first two things on that list, which is educate yourself and build relationships and take risks. I also have a, an example of a repair. You know, as a result of doing this work, I mean, I will never be free of the racist conditioning that I have. And every moment that I push against my racist conditioning, uh, it's coming back at me because it's circulating 24-7, 365. We live, swim in the racist water. If, I, if anyone listening is shocked by that statement, there, there's your entry point. If you don't understand how we're swimming in racist water, that's where you want to start studying uh, so that you can see it, right? Yeah. You not seeing it does not mean it's not happening, right? It just means, well, that's <laughs> kind of how it keeps on keeping on. So as a result of doing this work, um, I can say I run less racism. I still run racism. I, I run less, which means I do less harm. And that's no small thing. That can be one more hour on someone's life who didn't have to take it home and agonize over it and stress over it. That unconscious, insensitive thing I said or did, mm -hmm. right? So I, I can say I do less harm. And when I do harm, I'm not defensive about it. So the first thing I do um, when it's brought to my attention, either I realize it or somebody brings it to my attention, is is um, sometimes I do have feelings, right? Embarrassment, mm -hmm. um, shame. I go find a white person who I can process that with. And I definitely don't find a white person 
who will go into agreement with me that I did nothing wrong and they're oversensitive, okay? Those white people are everywhere. And I say, oh my God, and I cry. I do whatever I need, oh my God, I'm mortified. And then I put my head together with that person and we say, okay, now let's try to figure out all the ways the racism manifested in that interaction. Mm-hmm. And so I, I get, I've, I've vented my feelings. I can think more clearly. I've kind of done my best to recognize it. Then I contact the person that I did it with and I say, would you be willing to grant me the opportunity to repair the racism I perpetrated towards you in that meeting? Hmm. And I need to be prepared for them to say no. If I'm not, you know, they may just say, you know what? Oh, I'm so done with you, hypocrite, okay? Mm -hmm. (laughs) White woman who does this for a living, Mm -hmm. no. And if, I, if I'm not prepared to hold that, uh, I'm not ready to make an apology. Would you be willing to grant me the opportunity? Yes. I'll, I'll tell you in a recent situation. She said, yes. We sat down. I said, here's how I understand that I did that. We talk about it a little bit. And then I said, uh, I apologize. Try to do better. Is there anything I missed? Because Christine and I, you and I, we're not going to miss stuff. Right. We're both white. And in this case, this woman said, yes, you did, in fact, miss these things, Mm. you know, and then you just, you hold it, you know, Mm. and um, I see that now. Thank you. I apologize. I will work harder. I do not share whatever my intention was. I just don't go there. If, If you have to, just do real quick. (laughs) <laughs> just don't do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, sometimes I can say, I would never have wanted to perpetrate that towards you. And I didn't realize I did, but I see now that I did. Right. And now that you go there, put your energy there. Uh, anything I missed? Hold that. Anything else that needs to be said or heard that we might move forward? Hold that and move on. Mm. It's okay. Move on. And uh, don't use it as, as, an, as a reason to go and step all over people. But I have found usually there's greater trust after that. Why does it matter so much to you? I mean, I have people say to me all the time, like, oh, you must be really guilty if you're just oh. like, what, what motivates you to keep going and keep talking? And what I'm trying to get at when I make the point that probably the most profound message of all for me as a white person is that there was no loss in the absence of people of color from my life. That I really could go through my whole life. Think about our weddings. Think about if those of you who have had weddings, how white was that wedding? Uh, your wedding is your circle. And now think about what your funeral will probably look like if that's what your wedding looked like. So you could live your whole life and go to your grave, rarely if ever, having authentic, sustained cross-racial relationships, and no one suggested you'd lost anything. That is so deep for me. That's the place where I really got that internalized white superiority. Um, And that, in fact, we define the value of our spaces by the absence of people of color. I know what a good school is, and I know what a good neighborhood is, and I know what a bad neighborhood is, and it's all about race. Um, Wow, what a message. What a message. And how did that shape my identity as a white person to have white space be defined as good? Why would we ever call a white neighborhood good if it was segregated? It's It's so deep. What I'm looking for there is for us to own 
what that message has done to us in terms of our going forth and perpetrating and reproducing it. Mm-hmm. Because we aren't going to do it for our children. Uh, we aren't going to... Um, we're most likely going to be at tables where decisions are made. And I'm not even going to notice those perspectives are missing. And then if if they're presented and I don't understand them, I'm not going to be able to even validate that they're legitimate. So for me, it's less what tragedy did I not get, but more like how does not seeing any value in the perspectives or experience of people of color set me up to then go forth and contribute to a society mm. that says there's no value. I see. Um, I have been, uh, I guess, accused of trading in white guilt. Um, and it it's like the antidote to guilt is action, right? It's, it's back to, I, I don't feel guilt about this at all. I mean, I, it's probably clear to you that I, I, I have no trouble acknowledging that I have thoroughly saturated in white superiority and have patterns. And that I, I'm doing the best I can to challenge those patterns. And so the, when do I feel guilty? I feel guilty when I, when I haven't done that. When I go to bed each night, I need to be able to say, were you in your integrity today? And if you were silent... In the face of that comment or that joke, and there are times when I am, I'm not in my integrity. That motivates me, right? Mm. If you're feeling guilty, then uh, I would have to say that's inaction. The antidote to guilt is action. So, no, I don't, um, I find this deeply exciting. Yeah. Uh, Challenging, stimulating. It's the stuff of life. That's the meaning of life. I just want to go to my grave being able to say, most of the time, (laughs) I sought to align what I profess to value with what I actually practice. That was Robin D'Angelo. She just published the book, White Fragility, Why Is It So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism? Hearing this interview makes me think about some of my own moments of defensiveness. Yeah, so what I like about Robin's steps to repair is that they're so concrete. Yeah, I think anyone can remember them. And even if we feel the urge to yell, scream, hide, or even cry, we can do those things privately with white people who work through it with us and still hold us accountable, but then respond in the moment in a way that causes less harm. Yeah, And in a way that keeps the conversation going instead of shutting it down or having everyone pay attention to what's happening to the white person, which I have certainly done, by the way. Yeah, and me too. It it feels like white fragility is showing up in the news a lot lately with stories about Permit Patty, Barbecue Becky, and Pool Patrol Paula. It seems more and more white people are feeling threatened and unable to cope with any kind of racial stress. Our next episode is part two of our exploration of white fragility, and we will hear from some teachers of color who have had to deal with the fragility of white teachers. We will also talk about some of our own fragile moments and hear from some students as well. Yeah, so join us for next time when we will talk more about the impact of white fragility and how it is shutting down meaningful discussions about race in schools. Thanks for joining us. 
Don't forget to like us on iTunes, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and spread the word. A lot of our listeners find us through word of mouth. And check out our website where you can find amazing blog posts by teachers, professors, and students from around the country, as well as resources at www.teachingwhilewhite.org. Our story editor is the amazing Kate Ellis, and our sound editor is Lyra Smith. Our theme song was written and performed by Henry Needham. I'm Elizabeth Denevi. And I am Jenna Chandler-Ward, and this is Teaching While White. Thank you.